You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothbeam. Welcome back to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of the one, the only, Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by our other co-hosts, Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. How's the West Coast, Zach? Wonderful. Rainy as usual. Do you surf? No. No, not at all. They, they don't. Uh, Do they surf in Washington State? I think they do. There's kind of those guys who are, uh, you know, the the extravagant surfers. They kind of need it. It burns in their loins. They've got to they got to get it on the board. So they they do. But weird. Uh, okay. More well, of a Southern California thing. Uh, Aaron, how's England? Uh, cheery as ever. Cheery. Um, That's a very English thing to say. It's very very, very English. I'm very uh, I forget what you said, but I asked, this, asked you this before. Do you observe tea times in England? And I believe I said previously, but I do only when the Queen is present and Parliament is sitting. <laughs> what does that mean? What does Parliament sitting mean? Uh, I guess in session. Oh, gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Which well, is whatever. technically isn't tea time because it's normally like at two o'clock in the afternoon when Keir Starmer. But fun fact, actually, I was walking um, near one of the football stadiums and ran into the uh, labor opposition leader on the street last week. Sir Keir Stommer. So, Did you ask this person anything? Well, no, my eyes only met him, but, and I couldn't believe how incredibly short he was in person. So I was oh, a bit taken back by his height. Um, but. Um, do you drink tea or coffee there? Uh, I like a bit of a cup of tea every now and then. Okay. Just a bit of, just a bit of uh, milk. Yeah. All right. Well, whatever. Well, let's get into this. Um, last week we started going through a chapter of professor Gary Dorian's massive book series, the making of American liberal theology and no surprise to our listeners. The chapter we're going through is his biographical and theological sketch of Reinhold Niebuhr. And the purpose of this, what we're thinking, the reason why we decided to read this together and discuss it on the podcast is to just kind of ground us and our listeners a little bit in something that points to kind of the historical Niebuhr, who this person actually is. And it's funny because one of the first questions, um, it kind of took me aback. One of the first questions my supervisor asked me uh, when I was starting to write my dissertation on Niebuhr was, she said, she asked me, who's Niebuhr? are you using? Whose Niebuhr are you using? And I, you know, at first I didn't understand what she was talking about because you don't really think of someone that close to us in history. I mean, he was, I think he died like 11 years before I was born, but you don't really think of someone that recent as someone who can be that affected by who is reading him. But as I found, that's most certainly the case with Niebuhr. Broadcast of characters claim Niebuhr and broadcast of characters criticize Niebuhr, and they all do it, obviously, from, you know, very different perspectives. And Dorian is no different. Dorian is someone who clearly uh, claims Niebuhr and has his own perspective on him. And he's certainly on the liberal, Dorian is certainly on the liberal side of the spectrum, uh, teaches at Union Theological Seminary, 
um, has written extensively, has critiqued uh, uh, the Republican Party, um, is, is very vocal uh, from that left side. And, uh, and he's someone who writes as though Niebuhr is someone who carries that liberal tradition alongside of him. But in this next section, we come to a little bit of a difficulty uh, or a little bit of a challenge, we should say, of Dorian, because we get into some issues with Niebuhr regarding his relationship with liberalism uh, in his day. And we start seeing some big time cracks there begin to form between Niebuhr and liberalism. The sections that we're, that we're reading from today are called Attacking Liberal Theology, Niebuhr Idealism and Myth. And it's called that because Niebuhr um, will be attacking liberal theology and fending off his, his moral man and moral society from the attacks of liberals. And the second section that we'll be reading from is called Niebuhrian Dialectics, Human Nature, Divine Transcendence, and Power Politics. And I'm going to turn it over now to Aaron to kind of set the stage for what Dorian does here in this book and uh, kind of draw us and our listeners in a little bit. So, as you said, Cliff, this uh, this section is called Attacking Liberal Theology, Niebuhr, Idealism, Myth on page 451. And so this section is about developments, potentially political ones and certainly theological ones. So according to Dorian... The impassioned outcry that followed the publication of Moral Man and Moral Society bolstered Niebuhr's understanding of his alienation from liberal Protestantism. It's a progression outwards of moving away from it. The cause of this alienation was, to Niebuhr's mind, undoubtedly due to the way he attacked Christianity in Moral Man and Moral Society. And by attacking Christianity, it's his general critique of what it can do Dorian argues that Niebuhr's self-assessment as attacking Christianity politically from the left and theologically from the right is a bit overestimated. But then he flushes out the theological development in Niebuhr's subsequent writings, reflections on the end of an era, and such. In this assessment, Niebuhr's political commitment to the left is unquestionable to Dorian. But his theological commitments are a bit ambiguous at first. He remains committed to the theologically liberal cause of the social gospel, whilst also developing new theological language by reclaiming his Lutheran Calvinistic heritage that his brother critiques that he had lost at first, which brings up quite an interesting tension. So to bring out this sort of tension before us, Dorian first begins by explaining and illustrating the theological disagreements that began between Reinhold Niebuhr and his brother, uh, Richard Helmut Niebuhr. Now, Richard was a professor uh, of theology at Yale's Divinity School, and this particular argument rests on Niebuhr's relationship to liberalism. So Richard criticizes Niebuhr from two angles. Number one, on his stance on morality, and number two, on his stance on religion and what, what they do. According to Reinhold, has claimed that individuals are morally superior to groups than the, the groups to which they belong is wrong and does not escape the idealism for the realism which Niebuhr thinks he escapes into. The moral superiority emphasizes will and the human capacity for good. A richest understanding of sin is that it is totally invasive to the point that the face-to-face -face relationships the everyday relationships between friends and family, brothers and uh, son, brothers, brothers, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, 
in his own words, appear to be moral, but in fact illustrate the deep, coercive, and pervasive grip of self-interest that plagues us all. Man sees himself in the other, and that is what he loves. Man's will, therefore, is unable to rise above that particular self-interest. So in my relationship with Clift and Zach, I love these two guys, not because of what they are by themselves, but by the qualities that they reflect of me, of what I see myself in them. And so since man is ultimately concerned with himself, goodness is not a quality he can access on his own volition. But morality and Richard's understanding in his theological understanding is a gift provided from above. And any reference to the human capacity for good remains within this realm of idealism and in the liberal tradition for which Reinhold remains. Now, the second attack that Richard moves on to is, is Reinhold's view of religion as power. Now, what he sees as the end of religion is what religion ultimately serves to. Uh, Richard view religion as power only insofar as it points to its originality in the God, uh, but neither viewed religion as a human construction. Um, and he understood religion to serve human needs. Um, so to, to Richard, this point is illustrated by his brother's uh, remaining attachment to idealism. So the question that really brings, brings out of all this is what is exactly Niebuhr's relationship to liberal, uh, liberal Protestantism? What is his relationship to idealism? How does he kind of move out of these um, camps or uh, wars that we put him under? And how does Niebuhr move out of this uh, critique from Richard, uh, from his other uh, critiquers, and, and Dorian? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> as, as I'm... I, mean, I think that's a great summary of kind of the, the tensions of this chapter, because like I, I find myself, you know, kind of pondering and, and considering, you know, I went to pretty conservatively, uh, theologically conservative schools, right? I went to pretty theologically. So they always try to make you like sensitive to the heresy, you know, and often they're going to say that liberal theologians are heretics, right? That's, and so, yeah, I guess it, it's, it's a tension that goes unresolved for me because I don't see the, the things that like they're pegging as, uh, liberal or non non-liberal like Dorian's trying to shape right and trying to form and say hey this is this is what it means to be a liberal this is what it means to be a conservative um it's almost like the language is like it doesn't fit right it doesn't fit those kind of heresy hunter uh mentality that I was kind of shaped by whether I, I don't necessarily subscribe to that anymore but this chapter kind of confuses me almost to some degree right I, I get I get kind of lost because I'm trying to like put on this cap that looks in and says, okay, this is what, this is what a conservative is. This is what a liberal is. But then Dorian kind of shifts and, and he kind of places Niebuhr in this weird place where he's like, not a liberal, but not a conservative, but yet he is a liberal. You know, it's like, it's, we see kind of all these things kind of coming together and it, it could be kind of hard to, uh, hard to follow at times, I guess. Um, I'm completely there with you. Like, I almost think that, and this is, this is where you run into trouble when somebody clearly everybody has an agenda right everybody has an agenda on the way that they're painting Niebuhr um, whether you are Newhouse or or Dorian uh, on the on the right or the left but it always gets really confusing when they they start using terminology to kind of kind of etch in stone like what this historical organic 
obviously free thinking figure was. Yeah. And what we end up doing is we end up talking so much about these terms and what they mean that is almost kind of exhausting. Like we, (laughs) so this is going on. I, the third time that we as a group have discussed this chapter. And I think every time we discuss it, and of course this is the only one that's on the podcast, but every time we discuss it, we always end up kind of fighting over, not fighting, but trying to split hairs over definitions. What is Dorian actually trying to do here? I, I, I think that we just end up getting confused. And I think that where we can leave this whole discussion between Niebuhr and his brother um, is that, or this whole section, is that Niebuhr has issues with liberalism. Niebuhr has issues with conservatism conservatism uh where he is on this spectrum at any given moment of history we can definitely speculate on it but it's important to know that Niebuhr is a man full of tension and no matter what you throw at him if if Dorian were to say hey Reinhold you look liberal here because x y and z Niebuhr would probably take issue with that and probably be like no I am not like these people because of you know a b and c so, yeah, well, I, I, I don't know how helpful it is to try to, to, to etch in stone Niebuhr's ideology. Well, I think the one, the, the one thing that I would say that, you know, Doran, I think, does a really good job of is he does kind of bring up some of the core issues, right? I think some of the core issues that are kind of undergirding this, right, is very clearly uh, Niebuhr's understanding of scripture and how that kind of develops and shapes his politics and shapes the way that he addresses the world right yeah is he going to exhibit is he going to bring are we going to bring about greater justice in this life or not um so on and so forth and then so his view of his view of scripture right and we kind of begin to see that delineated in this section uh more clearly and i think that does piss him very liberal right but then the the pushback that and the other thing that it kind of keeps re-emerging is Niebuhr had this very unorthodox, or, or it's very orthodox sense, but unorthodox in liberal camps, his unorthodox view of sin, in, mm-hmm. in terms of if you look at it from his liberal background, it's kind of this unusual, right? It's kind of this, it doesn't really fit the mold that is kind of, uh, you would generally peg a, a liberal with. And so I feel like these are kind of defining things that you find in this chapter over and over again of like, <clears throat> there's this debate about like, what should we take out of scripture? How should we use scripture? And then specifically, like, what does sin mean? And how does it impact the way that I address the world and the way my hopes, my ideals? Um, And it seems like Dorian, I think is right in just saying that, like, he took a conservative view of sin. And, but again, obviously that, you know, it's debatable because it's like, okay, what does he mean by that and everything? Because he comes out of this more liberal approach to scripture, right? He looks at scripture and he sees it as like some sort of true myth, almost like Jung. Right, you know right. I mean? um, like this idea that that myth, we, we need to hold on to the myth. We need to see it as myth so that we can understand it and we need to be shaped by it, but we don't want it to like be too literal. You and we'll I mean? get into that here in a second. I think when we get into um, uh, interpretation of Christian ethics, but before we get into that, before we get into even the discussion of the Niebuhr brothers, because um, as Aaron pointed out, there is going to be this exchange between these these two figures that's going to kind of bring out some of what Dorian's going to want to call liberalism that we still find in Niebuhr. But let's start off with Niebuhr's attack of and him kind of fending off his work um, 
uh, fending, I'm sorry, fending off the liberals uh, a little bit in his time uh, after writing Moral Man and Moral Society. I have two quotes here. I want to I want to hear you guys comment on this. The first one, Niebuhr says, my conclusions, quote, my conclusions are not in accord with liberal Christianity. Okay, that, that's yeah. clear. I'll, and I'll continue. He, he continues. He says, I believe that liberalism has sentimentalized the message of Jesus beyond all recognition. But I fail to see why that should make my book unchristian in tone. I am trying honestly to find the relevance between the message of Jesus and the problems of our day. I may, I may be mistaken in my conclusions, but my conclusions have no unchristian motive or purpose. So people on the left were questioning whether or not he's even Christian. His own boss, Henry Van Dusen, who's the department chair at Union, was he questioned whether Niebuhr was even Christian anymore because they equated Christianity so much with this notion of progress and seeking out that utopia type of thinking. Uh, and then the second quote is very brief. He says, I hold it to be the chief sin of liberalism that it has given selfish man an entirely too good opinion of himself. Oof. Is Niebuhr against liberalism? Well, comment on this. What are you guys thinking? That's a zinger. I, 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 it's hard because he, he's definitely not a Manichaean. He's not the either or good or bad. Um, I think he has some you know, loyalty to liberalism, but I think the liberalism that he's looking at in the day, and I, and I really wonder about like, Niebuhr seems to have this pastoral vision. He doesn't just, I, I think almost, I wonder about like, what was it like, not just at, at the academic level, but at the lay level? Like what did liberal theology look like in a, in a liberal church in a lay setting? Because mm -hmm. Niebuhr really always strikes me as a very pastoral voice. And what I hear him saying here is he's like looking out at all these, he's going to these churches and he's visiting and he's hearing all these kind of sentimentalities preach. I mean, that, that to me is not just an academic attack, right? That's not just an academic. Right, he's not, not just going after the academics here. He's going after the people sitting in their pulpits and he's saying, you have sentimentalized the gospel. And it's like, that is meant to cut like right to the heart of the average person and say that like what you're doing is, is, is not meaningless, but it is pretty close to meaningless. A little bit later in this chapter, I love it. He, um, he says, uh, Dorian quotes Niebuhr as saying that we are reading Gandhi into Jesus. And I, <laughs> I think that's, that's a powerful way of putting it, that we're taking this figure who's already super uh, sentimentalized in, in liberal Christianity, and we're saying that Jesus is one of those. Jesus is this guy that's... Um, that's all about love and pacifism and, and that type of thing. Uh, and we're lifting him up so much that we're missing the brutal point about uh, his judgment on us. Christ, Christ judged, like he judged the self-righteousness of the people in his day. Uh, he judged, uh, you know, the sinfulness of people. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's interesting that we're missing, we're sentimentalizing Jesus to the point that Christianity is just kind of this, fluffy um you know feel good type of religion and it doesn't touch the core of our own sinfulness yeah it's, i guess and i would think it's sentimentalized the reason i really think it's a pastoral indictment is that he's like looking at how i think how people are responding to political issues and injustices right I, i'm obviously you know psychoanalyzing him a little bit here but it, i can you know what would cause him to say that it's almost like hey get up get off your butts start doing something productive start start seeking out Start, start acknowledging the real issues, right? Start acknowledging what sin has created 
and acknowledging that we're a part of it and then it, like doing something about it. Because like somebody who sentimentalizes in my mind is somebody who says, uh, it almost just kind of looks over the surface, right? They, they're, they're, they have kind of these cool, lofty, ideal claims, mm-hmm. but they're not, they're not striking at the heart of what's really going on. It's almost surface level. Yeah. And this critique is still valuable today. Look, I preached in a liberal church for six years, super liberal. Um, and to speak of sin was almost impossible. Like people don't want to hear about human evil um, when they go to church in this liberal church. They don't, it's, it's, they, they kind of link together Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Jesus. They're all kind of the same. They're kind of smushed together into this sentimentality. So to speak to your comment about his pastoral instincts about what he sees on the ground. I think that's absolutely the case. And, and while you might find in academics at that time, some more nuance and some, uh, you know, maybe people taking more seriously sin and liberalism, uh, it's, you don't, you don't see that filtering down into the pews. Well, I, I think um, where Niebuhr is at, at this point, at this stage with the publication of More Man and More Society is this sort of tension of his political commitments and his theological commitments. Now, you know, possible critiques from the right could say that Niebuhr is not taking sin seriously enough. If sin is completely invasive in every individual's life, how could we ever obtain any relative forms of justice at all? Hmm. Now, on the left, though, for what Niebuhr is also critiquing and also providing clarification to, he's saying you don't take what the people on the right are saying seriously enough. And then the people on the right saying you don't take what the people on the left are saying seriously enough here that how can you actually believe the stuff in the Bible to be literally true? And then he comes into his, um, you know, with Tillich, his formation of what it means to have a myth that means something to us. It might be something worthwhile to pursue today in the church. Yeah. So, and, and Niebuhr is going to kind of construct this. He's going to, and maybe this is what's going to cause it is this, this initial riff with liberalism that he has at first. Mm-hmm that he and he's going to have a discussion with his brother here in a little bit but he's going to end up articulating some kind of a third road a third way in interpretation of christian ethics where he's going to point the finger in both directions but right now it's just he's not negotiating a a gray area he's not he's not negotiating sides right now he's this is just an all-out attack on his own people the liberals and saying that you are not, uh, we are not taking sin seriously. Um, but this is maybe a good segue into his debate with his brother, because Dorian is trying to, uh, with the debate uh, with his brother, Dorian is trying to kind of bring out that Niebuhr isn't necessarily completely uh, conservative here. He's, he's Just because he's attacking the liberals, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's in the camp with, with the Bartians or something like that. Uh, So Aaron, could you open that up a little bit? What is going on with this 
um, debate with Richard Niebuhr. And to give a little bit of background, I think you mentioned this earlier, he teaches at Yale Div, he's a Bartian. Um, he's definitely more theologically to the right of even of, of Niebuhr, even yeah, though yeah. We, we mentioned earlier that um, Niebuhr is maybe to the, to the right theologically, but to the left politically, he's farther to the, to the right in both categories, I think we can say. And Richard was actually pretty uh, fundamental to the beginning of post-liberalism and narrative theology and that type of stuff. Uh, we see this everywhere today. We see narrative theology. Um, it's, it seems like it's on everybody's uh, lips nowadays. Most people we know, I would say, are mm-hmm. are in a camp with with Richard. So, what ex- explain this a little bit? This this disagreement. Yeah. That we have. So at the beginning of the section, Dorian lays out the problem that I think is kind of building off the rest of the section, is that Niebuhr has this really positive self-assessment of his work he, he begins by saying that you're talking reinhold yes reinhold that's correct sorry uh, it, it will get confusing between two r's yeah, richard and reinhold uh, but uh, reinhold on immoral man and immoral society makes this positive assessment of himself he says i am attacking christianity from the left but i'm um, also attacking it from uh, attacking from the left politically, then he's taking attacking it from the right theologically, mainly with his assessment of sin and human nature. Right now, what he is trying to say there is he's trying to distance himself from the liberal Protestants who do not take sin seriously enough. So he's trying to add this theological element to show the utility of using the theological language of sin to kind of map out what goes on in human society, right? But this leads into a critique from Richard, his brother. His brother, is, as we've kind of mentioned a couple of times now, is from this Barton camp, a bit further to the right than where Reinhold is at this stage. And he says, you know, you attack these liberal Protestants as idealists, for not taking this language seriously enough, for having this really positive estimation on humanity's cap- capacity for goodness. But if you took sin seriously, you would see that sin is so pervasive that it infects everything we do. So how, if sin is a reality, how can anyone be good? How can we do good on the individual level as well as our collectives. And that's how he brings it up. Yeah, good. So it, it, it sounds like, like Richard is trying to kind of call his bluff a little bit here and be like, uh, you know, you're still just like them deep down. It's just that you're exploiting Christianity for your own liberal purposes. Um, and you're using sin this way and to understand this facet of, of Niebuhr a little bit. And I don't even know if it's fully developed in Niebuhr's mind right now. I, I tend to think that everything that precedes uh, nature and destiny of man, Niebuhr hasn't really worked out, you know, necessarily his own methodology. He just knows that sin is helpful using uh, Christian language of sin and, and that type of stuff is helpful right now. But there is kind of this uh, Calvinistic secret going on that lays at the foundation of Niebuhr's whole methodology. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it goes back to Calvin, the, the first part of uh, the very first chapter of Calvin's Institutes. And I would even say that 
man, I'm tempted to say that Niebuhr read this one section and built his whole career off of it. Um, but this one little section, Calvin makes the argument, and this is just paraphrasing, but he says, we cannot begin to know God until we, we become most displeased with ourselves. And it's this idea that basically the more that we understand our own sin, the more we can come to understand truth, um, the more that we clarify reality and we understand our position within it. But Richards here seems to be taking this step as a liberal stage. He's only using sin, that, uh, that critique of society, in order to progress uh, the, the liberal um, program mm. in, in society. Which is pretty much what he goes on to say in his second, second critique of, of Reinhold, which is on religion, right? He says to Niebuhr that, hey, man, you know, the way you view religion is that it's just a human construct that's supposed to serve human mm. needs. What is, what is the truth in religion if it's just supposed to serve human needs? He says you view religion as power. But uh, Richard's counterpoint is that religion is only power insofar as it points to God. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you guys think that that's a little, I don't know if I want to call it cynical, to kind of flesh this whole idea out with Niebuhr. Um, he, was, he was roundly critiqued by the right for not having having any semblance of an ecclesiology or any semblance of, of a theology of kingdom that Niebuhr views basically the collective humanity, even as it is expressed and, and, and worked out in the church is still uh, it's no different really from society that, uh, that is just as sinful as the rest of society and that type of thing. But the religious symbolism can help us, kind of understand a little bit more about uh about the truths in the world um so do you guys think it's fair to say that religion is a man-made construct or human uh construct that isn't that separate from the rest of the world uh it's it's but it really just kind of helps clarify things maybe i would just wonder like first off like does never expressly say that you know what i mean um I think he tends to occupy a more uh, prophetic slash uh, cynical position. Um, and I think you need that in society. You need somebody that says that that kind of whittles things down and says, you know, is this just a man-made thing? What, what are the, what are the practical pragmatic benefits of this? Um, well, I, 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 I not charging to interrupt you, but I think, I think the, 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 point, the problem is for Niebuhr is that, um, his view of myth right that he, he agrees with the liberals liberal process insofar as they see the bible as myth right so it doesn't communicate but just truth. to dismiss it it's myth yeah. but just to dismiss it exactly and he does try to reclaim that just enough to make it relevant but as we've talked about with you know with cliff included in the previous podcast and and privately what does Cornel West say to Niebuhr in that? Oh, right. is, is, it, is, it the is it the dialogue he has? Cliff, I haven't read this thing that you have, but it's- Oh, well, no, it's, it's actually, so the year I, the, the, the very next year after I graduated from Union, all of a sudden now Cornel West is teaching there. 
and he and Dorian and Serene Jones and, and James Cone, they put on a big uh, seminar and uh, where they all take turns at kind of, uh, you know, pulling at neighbors threads and, and applying it and stuff like that. And, uh, and it comes to a point where Cornel West says, uh, but Niebuhr, do you believe in God? Uh, and then he kind of uh, creates his own response from Niebuhr's perspective. I believe in this, the symbolic necessity of God, of, of kind of the concept of God. And then Cornel West comes back, but do you believe in God? Do you believe in the reality of God? And man, I, I want to devote an entire podcast to this as well, is how does God's reality actually exist in Niebuhr's mind um, it, or, or is it just symbols is it is that all that yeah. it is but that's the thing is if it's just if God is a reality religion has a more intensified meaning so that that's the that's the point I think we're you know in terms of your question Zach is does Niebuhr actually say this he may not he may not have said that explicitly but it's implicit in the, the thought, the, the ideas, right? Mm-hmm. I wonder, too, if I could just press here. I, I wonder, one of the things I, you know, I just really take away from this chapter, this section, that really makes me wonder is part of the deal is, I feel like, and even by Niebuhr's own confession, he has kind of an underdeveloped theology. His theology is kind of like incomplete. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it doesn't like, he doesn't, he didn't write a systematic theology he didn't really care to work out kind of the finer nuances of the Trinity or the two natures of Christ or any of that sort of stuff. And almost like he operated from a very intuitive point of view. Mm -hmm. I mean, and and I think that one of the things we're running into, at least in part, right. I don't think it's the whole explanation, but I sort of wonder if like, on the one hand, he'll tell you that he'll come across as like very conservative in his estimations of who God is. And especially based on the way that like he addresses things like, he is, he's, it's like this fundamental belief that like sin is like, we need to look and understand sin as a part of our life. But then in the same hand, he doesn't want to let go of this idea that like, maybe it's just a myth. You know what I mean? It's like, he wants to wed these two ideas together that, that other people would just say, you have to reconcile them. You have to choose one or one or the other. But he's like, I have this intuition that both are true, but there's not really, I'm not going to sit and write a dissertation on why those two things can be reconciled. I'm just going to go with my intuition. I, I, I just feel like I run into that a lot with Niebuhr where he's just kind of like, kind of a both end here you know without saying it's a both end right he doesn't have an, a, a developed epistemology and he doesn't yeah, that, he, he, he comes in just kind of assuming god and let me ask you this how often does a prisoner come up to you zach and say do you but you do you really believe it though uh or are you just yeah. are you just using there, there never is an occasion where you're asked if you actually believe it now it, it has come about with Niebuhr where people have asked him point blank and I think he wants to step into the ethicist role on these occasions and he wants to say uh and he he wants to speak to a wider audience that this is this is good for society when we're all doing this I'm not going to limit this to just people who believe so he will kind of turn it into more of a phenomenology or more cool. of a more of a, a pragmatism uh, on those occasions. I, I sort of wonder though, if one of the things I appreciate about Niebuhr, and I, I think we're seeing it here, I, I think, I think it's undergirding this. So I'm sure there's an expert that could clarify for me. But I wonder if he just has an honest epistemology. You know what I mean? I he, know. You yes. know what I mean? It's just like, like I'm just going to think of like myself, honestly, like, sure, you know, I could tell you all the arguments I have. Oh, 
uh, all the arguments I have for God or the reasons I believe in God yeah, or yeah. on and on and on. But like some days I wake up and I'd be like, wow, like, is there even a God? You know, I'm just yeah, like, I feel yeah. like an atheist. And other days I wake up and I'm like, man, like the, look at the beauty around me. And like, look at the beauty of partaking of the communion table together. And like, clearly there must be a God who's behind all of this. And this is this beautiful representation of the gospel. And then, then you know, that, that very evening I might be like, ah, the world's going to end. <laughs> No, and, and I you was bring up a great point, Zach, because yeah. that I feel this. I think it's a, an epistemological honesty and an epistemological humility where he doesn't want to fill in that blank. Yeah. Uh, he, he like if somebody asked, like, I, I think Aaron and I have had conversations about this, like, but do I actually believe there is a God? I want to like obviously a big part of me wants to say yes like that's absolutely the case do i know there's a god that's a different question and i can't i I can't really operate in that framework and i think a lot of times when people uh ask you do do you believe in god what they're really asking is do you believe do you act as though you know there's a god and i can't do that like I, i i don't operate as though i know there's a god but faith is 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 a vital component of that and we have to recognize with faith what faith actually is and it is uh part and parcel to not knowing for sure and what's what's the harm in just admitting that you know and and so i i think that yeah i I think you bring up a good point that niebuhr is really just kind of being honest with what he can say and what he can't say well and and instead of having like a perfect crystal clear epistemology I think it works to his advantage to just kind of not do that because I think it limits a lot of people. You know what I mean? I think it's one of the main things that makes Niebuhr so deadly is that yeah. he's not beholden to these like perfect epistemological statements that kind of capture and take hold of most theological speakers, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're totally captured by Calvinism, even though in the back of their mind, they're thinking to themselves, I think this is the best representation of Cal- of what mm-hmm. theology is. I don't really know. I mean, like I, I would be, I would be on the Calvinist end of things, but at the same time, you know, there's some stuff I run into and I'm like, this is a good description of things. It's not, I don't think it's the ideal description of, of theology. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because I don't, I don't think we've arrived at that. You know what I mean? But what Niebuhr does know is the symbolic power of religion. And I think yeah. that that's important when you bring somebody in who is humble about his beliefs and honest about his beliefs when he does stick to the truth of of scripture then you should be paying attention to what that guy says and 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 that's where i am with neighbor like i yeah like regardless of where he is with what he actually believes and this or that he believes in scripture yeah that's what i say on on one hand it just seems like okay like he says all these things about it being myth and all this other stuff but he's like i'm going to base my entire life on this and then I'm going to use this to shape other people's lives and shape right. society and foreign policy. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, you believe in it more than most people that say they believe in it. You know, most well, of the liberalists it, wouldn't take it as seriously as you do. I think it really demonstrates a further odds, maybe dialectic in Niebuhr's thought that it isn't really brought forth. And I don't know if you guys would agree with me on this, but it seems in many cases his epistemological humility humility is founded on his is his maybe his empiricism right Hmm. so he begins from the point his standpoint of what he is in you know he he begins as 
an Amer a German American from this particular time and place, and then builds his theology outward. Whereas his brother and other people, knowledge only begins with the knowledge of God. Yes, right? and special revelation. And yeah. it's this kind of top-down theology that it says this, therefore we do this. God is this, therefore we we worship him like this. Whatever. Uh, Niebuhr, I think that if he acknowledged, if he put kind of belief in God as a central animating feature of his theology, it wouldn't wind up with the rich hamartiology that he has and this rich study of sin and human nature that he has, because it begins with just being real about where we are in our own context of history and being real about what a human being is and, uh, and, and, and our own temptations and frailty and, and, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I like you get somebody completely different if they begin with, with, uh, with this is absolute truth and we work our way from that. I mean, even Bonhoeffer says that I think in the part, literally the beginning of the world of com the world of conflicts. And, and this is where I, I'm a bit like with Niebuhr, since he is intertwining and interweaving himself, borrowing ideas and concepts, he's not explicitly in my mind building this dualism between ethics secular ethics and then christian ethics right almost it doesn't seem to be as there's this and that which is i think what bonhoeffer in that illustration the world of conflicts where he says the knowledge of good and evil seems to be the aim of all ethical reflection the first task of christian ethics is to invalidate this knowledge is niebuhr trying to invalidate what we have done when he does his sort of scholastic investigations of Marxism, of romanticism, of idealism? You know, I, I don't really think so. I, he, he invalidates it based upon where it leads to, mm -hmm. not what it, right. not on the partial truths it uh, brings forth. That's right. This is the Jamesian part of him. Where do you end up when you take this view? Yeah. And is that good? for society? Is that good for humanity? Um, is that honest? Is that an honest reflection of who we are and what we're capable of doing? Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, that's a really good point. So as we keep on going, we're, we're going to see how this argument actually, I, I don't know if this is how Dorian is actually trying to frame Niebuhr's progression. He doesn't really say how profound and of, of an effect this debate he has or this discussion he has with his brother was on his life and career but it does seem to echo throughout uh the the incoming books that he has he's going to get into reflections on the end of an era um and we're going to get into interpretation of christian ethics both of which he starts to kind of flesh out a little bit more um in, in his understanding of scripture and things like this uh, and and flesh out more of his relationship, I guess, with both conservatism and liberalism. Um, Aaron, why don't you open this up a little bit about like what he kind of does with reflections on the end of an era? Because that's the next book after Moral Man, Moral Society. Yeah. Um, so all throughout the beginning of this section, Dorian is trying to illustrate this development of Niebuhr. And that development that takes place isn't necessarily 
it comes in his political affiliations, as we'll see um, after um, a Christian interpretation of ethics. Um, Niebuhr removes himself from as a neo-Marxist into more of a liberal Democrat who kind of more or less agrees with Roosevelt's New Deal yes. reformism, right? He softens. But his politics so softens. Exactly. He softens. But that also coincides with this new adoption of theological language. So in the critique that Richard, as we were speaking previously, levels against his brother, his major critique is, look, your father, our father, was this Lutheran Calvinist pastor. And nothing you're writing has anything remotely of that in it. It's missing all that stuff. And so Niebuhr, uh, Reinhold, begins rethinking his theological commitments by rereading Paul, Calvin, and Augustine, mm -hmm. and starts to develop this new language of providence and grace. Yes. And he into, now he's using this language to develop the sort of theological perspective of his you know, assessment of human nature. And so that begins with reflection on the end of an era. And, um, and Dorian, yeah. Dorian even points out that this is where his, um, this is where his boss, his department chair, Henry Van Dusen is starting. Actually, it, Dorian makes a point of saying that this is where Van Dusen is reassured that he, he must be still a Christian. Uh, <laughs> but, and because his own boss was wondering like, Oh my gosh, have we, have we lost this guy's this guy an atheist now, or where is he? But then Niebuhr starts developing this uh, Augustinian view of history. And this is where um, I've referred to this before. So I'll refer to it again, where Sabella, I, I had asked Sabella, like where at some point Niebuhr drops Hegel, Niebuhr drops this deterministic, understanding of history unfolding into the great and grand Marxian revolution. And he starts using the more Hebraic or Augustinian understanding of recurrent history. And, and he, Sabella pointed to reflections on the end of an era. This is where he starts critiquing that Hegelianism and he starts critiquing and he starts having this more open-ended future uh, that we're all a part of and we have agency and he heightens the, the, uh, person, the personhood of each individual of having kind of responsibility over themselves and their future and that type of thing. Um, so yeah, that, that's a great point. He sounds much more Christian going forward. Yeah. And I think that that's also by his own admission, a time when it's not just that he received, I think probably obviously in part, it's because he received the criticism like Dorian says, but I mean, Dorian also puts in here that like, this is at a time when he genuinely was kind of experimenting with other ideas. I mean, he, there's a quote in the mm. chapter that makes it pretty clear. Like he was trying to figure out like, what, what is the right system? And this period from like the thirties, you know, into the maybe just before the forties, right. The late thirties, he was, he kind of came to the idea that these kind of other ideas that he was trying Marx, Marxism, um, you know, other various ideas. I, I don't know all the details, but um they didn't really work out. Right. And he kind of kept coming back personally, he kept coming back to the, the, the Judeo Christian uh, point of view or perspective. Um, and this was kind of through a process of elimination to some degree for him. Um, he was, he was taking these things on. So I think, you know, Van Dusen's nervousness about his, you know, theology professor losing his faith. 
yeah, it might've been founded. You know, there might've been some very clear indications that he wasn't super thrilled with Christianity at that time. Yeah. And I think it's important to see the kind of Christianity that Niebuhr was so displeased with. And you, you can't ignore the fact that he has all these issues with liberal Christianity and he's not finding it there. Like he, he's not and and that that way of framing it at the time that what liberalism was doing at the time he was not digging that at all he obviously wasn't digging it in conservatism either so whatever he's going to be you know kind of poking and prodding and and incorporating and and dismissing um it's going to happen somewhere in between these two extremes or somehow maybe even transcending this binary of liberalism and conservatism. And that's really what he starts down the road in, uh, in this Reflections on the End of an Era. And it's really what we find kind of uh, finding its completion or fulfillment in interpretation of Christian ethics. Um, and I'll say just one thing about this, and, and, and I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts about it as well. Niebuhr points in both directions and says liberals you look just like these conservatives over here. It's just, you know, you are centered in a different direction, you, but you are just f as fundamentalist yeah. as they are in these ways. He calls them fundamentalists. Yeah, he calls them, these liberals, fundamentalists. Um, they are incapable of seeing outside their own uh, prism, um, incapable of, of self-critique. Um, and, uh, and you are just as dogmatic as this other side. And then he goes down this rabbit trail of myth, um, which Dorian says he kind of borrows from Tillich. Uh, but this idea that, okay, those on the right, you are trying to, you know, dig your heels in on the uh, facticity or, you know, the, 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 the truth in, you know, capital, not capital T truth, but the scientific truth or what have you of these historical facts as, as, as though Adam and Eve were historical figures. Um, and that is unhelpful. You are missing uh, the, the deeper truth if you are just obsessed with, with you know, the literal truth of this thing. And he looks to the liberals and says, you are discounting this altogether because it's a myth, because it's not factual. So he's trying to chart this kind of middle path between these two extremes and say, there is truth here, but we don't have to accept that it's all factual. So do, do you guys find some resonance there with your own personal journey, I guess, and, and finding out uh, and, and how you um, evaluate uh, the Bible? Yeah, I, I mean, I, as, a, as, a, as a high schooler um, in Cincinnati, becoming a Christian midway through, it was almost like a light switch for me that I had this new force to illuminate how to live my life and how to view the world. And, but with that came sort of group commitments. And what I mean is I had to agree to positions automatically. Number one, six day creation, 6,000 year old world. Right. I'm like, ah, this has to be the truth. And then after that, the, at the foundation of that, that, that belief was the Bible has to be literal in order for, to, for my, my faith to be true. But developing out of that, I began to be a bit dis, 
displaced by that, this this weighted as a lot of my friends who were not Christians, like that's a bit dumb to believe that. That's a bit weird to, <laughs> to think of these things. So fine. You know what? I actually can see to some of your points. I don't buy the evolution bit yet. So what I'll do is I'll go to Hugh Ross. Mm. And Hugh Ross is this uh, astrophysicist Christian who believes the universe is 13 billion years old, believes the Big Bang Older. is how the universe yeah. was born. Old Earther, but he, said he, but he still says he takes the Bible literally, I, I think is what his thing is, yeah. in his interpretation of Genesis. So in that there is a still literal interpretation going on in my mind, but now I'm on the opposite of two polarized extremes. And, and then I developed it into something completely different, but we won't have to go in that. But I think it's really illustrative for a lot of how people or Christians feel today, or even people who are just religious in general, is that for a lot of them, fundamentalism is, is, isn't necessarily the thing you believe, but how you believe it, mm -hmm. right? So you can be a fundamentalist by believing these old dogmas, just as much as you can be a fundamentalist if all you do is believe the new dogmas and let it circulate and don't let any new air to breathe in. Right? You know, he, he seems to be echoing here a lot of what I, I would say all three of us to an extent have been exposed to and even accepted on some level. He's, he's starting to sound like what his brother would come to start, and that is narrative theology. That is the idea that contained within the story. Let's not get bogged down on the actual uh, events um, of and history, but how does this story play out? How does it include me? How do I see myself within this story? Um, we, we're getting distracted by Kim and Ham trying to prove the six-day creation, um, but we can't throw it all away like the others, but we have here a story that that seems to be acceptable in any worldview. If you just like this story, then then you can kind of sign up for it. And in this, you you find all kind of neoliberal or uh, post-liberal creatures uh, running okay. around today, like um, like Jordan Peterson or uh, who's uh, Tom, whatever that guy's name is from England, the historian. All these people that find value in scripture as a story. And even all the way up to like N.T. Wright or, you know, Richard Hayes, people who use narrative theology to kind of yeah. express their ideas. Well, um, is, is this where you guys landed? Go ahead, Zach. Well, and I, I, just to answer, so I'll, I want to answer both your questions. The question you started off with, and then this question we're just in, and the first thing I'd say is I think even I see a similarity to Bart in this sense, right? We don't, we don't want to, we don't want to, uh, they often are at heads and they're butting heads and all of this stuff. Um, they, their, their ideas are seen as not the same, but I see a similarity here in this narrative theology or in this position that there's this, I mean, you got to love Bart's uh, uh, very evasive uh answers to questions about inerrancy right because conservatives really want him on their team and so they're going to try to peg him down by getting him to agree with yeah that's right inerrancy. but then he kind of just says well it, it, the most important part is that christ is present in the message right, right. And, the and I, and, yeah and i think sure. it's a better answer honestly than inerrancy um but i see niebuhr trying to do something very similar um and then the, the other thing that, I, that ties into this scripture and then you asked a question earlier along these same lines 
Uh, Dorian says on 463, and he's quoting Niebuhr, the first part, Dorian says, sola scriptura is too limiting. And then he quotes Niebuhr, and Niebuhr says, the roots of faith are many and various. And I can't believe that any theology is sounder for beginning its task by cutting away all but one. And, and I find a certain sympathy with Niebuhr in that. You know what I mean? A certain sympathy, like, I think he's pretty right about that, you know? Um, obviously Explain. Well, like, I think anybody that comes to scripture and anybody that comes to the task of theology is confronted by this, even Ken Ham, right? It, who says it's sola scriptura, right? He's coming to this position that allows him to interpret Genesis 6 in a certain specific way with a bunch of other baggage, but he's claiming sola scriptura. We're just beginning with one. Uh -huh. And the reality is there's a lot more at play there. And I think Niebuhr is just a lot more familiar with that. Yeah. And so I, I, I find a lot of sympathy with that, right? The sola scriptura, I think, is is limiting like i understand the authority of scripture and i think that like both bart and niebuhr would place a high degree of authority on scripture as much as yeah. niebuhr wants to from different places but yeah yeah maybe squirm away from that and say it's just myth and we got to see it as myth um at the same time it's like yeah you also based your whole entire life around this and you're pretty committed to these ideas um what i love about this conversation is now we have we have to kind of slide a piece of paper between where Bart is in interpretation of Christian ethics and, or I'm sorry, where Niebuhr is in interpretation of Christian ethics and where Bart is in their views of revelation, because they are very similar. Uh, this is seen as Niebuhr's neo-Orthodox book. This is where that, that whole kind of uh, misnomer that that's apparently haunts Niebuhr for the rest of his life, that he's neo-Orthodox and he hates it. It comes from this book because he's charting this third way. He's he is affirming scripture, but he's he's uh, he's affirming the truth of it like it's what lies behind the scripture almost. What lies behind the manuscripts and the the stories that it tells and that that type of thing. To if if I were to differentiate the two of them, Bart sees scripture as as paper. Scripture is paper to Bart. It's a, it's a story. Uh, yes, it's, but, but ultimately it's just paper. It's all about to Bart what that paper refers to. And Christ to Bart is the special revelation. Christ is the revelation. And these things are imperfect. These are imperfect people pointing to this perfect thing. Whereas Niebuhr would pump the brakes on Christ being the perfect revelation of God, I think, and centering his understanding of special re revelation all around the person of Christ, because he would look back to the o Old Testament, to the Hebrew Bible and be like, oh my gosh, there's so much wisdom back there too. That's equally as valuable as what we find in the New Testament. And yeah, I, I, I just think that his view would be more correlatively authoritative and that where Bart would say it's authoritative because it's talking about Jesus. Niebuhr would say it's authoritative because it aligns with my experience. I see this truth every day in myself and I see this truth in my reality on a, in a lived experience type of way. That's interesting because, you know, I, I see what you're saying and I, and I, I would be, and maybe, maybe that's what Niebuhr said, but I just, I find it maybe a little disingenuous. You know what I mean? I think that as much as he wants to avoid a top down view, I think his, his overwhelming use of like scripture and his overwhelming use of 
like he's obviously practical. Like you're saying, there's a practical element. He's saying, I look around and I experience these things, but he has to be aware of the fact that not everybody else sees those things and finds them to be pragmatically clear. You know, there's, there's, I, I'm sure he's aware of that. You know, well, I, mean? I think he would probably say the proof is in the pudding. Um, you got to get into it to see it. You but know, it does speak to his experience because it says that he went through from 1930. He admitted from 1930 to 1940, he's experimenting with all these ideas. And so it, it, it's no, no surprise to me that he then comes to this conclusion of like, dude, it's obvious. It's right clear. It's like, that's because his experience was like literally sorting through these things and deciding that's right. whether or not they're legitimate. I love that you say that because if you read Nature and Destiny of Man, what is going on here is it, it's almost autobiographical and that he's going around to all these different views pitting them against one another, showing how all of them fail on some level and, and their interpretation of human nature and their interpretation of the nature and destiny of, of, of humanity. And it's almost like he can speak so clearly about this because he went through it. And it serves as both an apologetic, he's kind of weeding out the crap views, the ones that, that lead us into confusion. And then what he's left with at the end of it is Christianity. Christianity is affirmed negatively. It's not, it's not because he believes that it's, it was chiseled in the side of a rock and given to us you know, from a cloud or something like that. It's, it's not because it's like this divine revelation, but because it's the most true thing to our experience once you filter everything else out. And he will go through it systematically, everything else, and show how it sucks. And then what we're left with is so, this beautiful, perfect tension that Christianity provides us and, and reveals about human nature. So the one counterpoint someone might argue, right, is what you're actually saying is neither is just picking the last thing that's standing. He's yeah, not necessarily I think he's Christian. negatively affirming it. I think it's via well, negativa. Yeah. So in that case... You could also say that Christianity, right? Just go over here. And this is the way he describes or characterizes democracy in Children of Light and Children of Darkness. Mm -hmm. Democracy is the worst possible yes. of solutions. It's the best so it's, possible terrible solution. Yeah, yeah. So is, is, is that Christianity? Is Christianity democracy? No, is Christianity the best worst possible solution? <laughs> Uh, I don't know if he would frame it like that or not. He well, might. He, I think he would just say that it's the it's the it is the clearest articulation of human nature yeah. and our the way that we sin and hurt each other and the way that we f up society, etc., etc. Well, but I wonder I, why uh, Christianity is so clear in its articulation without that sort of. Again, I think this is probably needs to be a bit more talk about this field of revelation here because christianity is supposed to articulate it's supposed to give some sort of form uh structure to what's going on why doesn't democracy do the exact same thing i uh, but uh, granted you can see him working and with the same methodology and both of them end up with uh, one ends up with Christianity, one ends up with democracy. I see where your mind's going with this. All mm -hmm. that I would say is they answer, he's, he's trying to answer different questions with both of them. Yeah, um, I see what you're saying. And w when it comes to nature and destiny of man, he's trying to find that the best kind of warning, the best description of who we are deep down is 
what we're left with is Christianity. The, the Christianity gives us the clearest picture of sin and the way that we screw up things, um, the way that we break the world. And then with irony of American history, he's trying to find that government that can best contain that thing that Christianity describes. Yeah. Does that make sense? That can best restrain that thing, the government that can best uh, protect each of us from that image of God, but sinful thing that is described in Christian scriptures. What is the best government that can, that can, that can harness that and, and, and prevent those, uh, those frictions described in Christianity yeah. from harming society and democracy is the best one because uh as 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 niebuhr says um uh because of the goodness of humanity um democracy is possible but because we are unjust democracy is necessary um it can contain kind of both sides of that self i think mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i think this whole process niebuhr went, goes through right i think it makes him somewhat of a terrifying individual because he's terrifyingly authentic in terms of you know, uh, if there's an issue, he has, there's not a lot of issues he hasn't covered, not a lot of issues, rocks he hasn't unturned in terms of like trying to process this personally. Um, and it probably makes him a lot more solidified, uh, solidified in his faith. Yeah. yeah. In terms of like, probably not a lot of stuff that's going to change his mind at that point, but he's always open to that anxiety. Like he's always open to these new ideas, but it's probably somewhat of a personally grueling task to do that, to live in that sort of, dialectic you could say you know what i mean that personal dialectic where you're you know i don't know and we brought this up before like him writing to his brother and being like oh i wish i could just believe like you believe and i wouldn't be such a miserable sad sack all the time (laughs) i love that i need to find that where that is and and read it verbatim on the podcast sometime but uh that might be um a good place to wrap up um i think potentially what we should say um those are wrapping up now is that next week yes. we will be joined by the great professor dorian himself. in the flesh well not in the flesh digitally and in, in, the, in the pixels yeah he'll be with us and um will be it'll here. be interesting i haven't seen him i had him as a professor i haven't seen him in a while i'm still a little bit um intimidated by him uh so it should be interesting but i i am so thankful that he, that we're able to get him on here and zach you did a good job of of bringing him on and uh and yeah i'm pumped yeah, I, I, may, I would like to ask because you know i think maybe for our listeners who are listening to this episode and next episode they will find this particular talk we've had on this yes. section of dorian's book quite helpful so, Cliff, what, what do you think? Maybe maybe introduce a question here, right? Mm-hmm. Or what, what are some questions you think come out of this section that might be important next week to give our listeners some sort of time to think about um, what we'll discuss with Dorian next week? Um, three things, two things come to mind immediately. Based upon this week, I want to know, like, how is he, what's his definition of liberalism? And... I'm not going to let him off the hook. And you guys can keep me to this. I'm not going to let him off the hook with just the belief that Christianity makes the world better. Uh, I know that he tries to work from that de- definition to kind of 
you know, buddy up with Niebuhr and, and bring him into the fold a little bit. I need more than just that vague thing, because like demonstrated, like it was demonstrated with Anthony Jones uh, the in a, a few podcasts ago, um, the pacifist that we had on here, the most conservative doctrinaire Christian will believe that what they are doing is what's best for the world. Uh, so I'm not going to let them off the hook with that. Second question is, I want to know how we apply this thing to Christian nationalism. What, like, what, I know that he wrote a piece recently, and by recently, I think in the last three years or something like that, on Niebuhr in the Trump era. And I, and I would love to hear his thoughts on that and, uh, and to open that up a little bit. Yeah. Good question. How about you? Have any, uh, do you have any questions? Like, what, what do you think might be something relevant? I'd go along with what Cliff said. I mean, I, you know, I, I want to know what does he mean by liberal, right? And I, I want to know more, I, I guess I'm more interested in personally how Niebuhr is impacted. Uh, where, where, do, where does he see Niebuhr personally, right? Like how has Niebuhr impacted his view of faith? Um, how has he felt, if, if he has, how has Niebuhr brought him to a place like where he's felt rebuked or, or uh, where he's been challenged by Niebuhr, you know, a place where he's been really like, oof, you know, uh, I kind of want to know about that. I want to know, like, here's this person who's written so much on theology and encountered so many theologians. What are those things that, you know, along the way that really personally impacted him? Um, and, you know, and, and along with what Cliff said also, I think those are great questions too. So how about you, Aaron? Um, my mind is a wandering desert of absolutely <laughs> no thoughts. Um, all that resides is one coconut tree. And there are no coconuts. Um, so I don't know. I think, I think perhaps, I think it's so clear that a lot of us gain inspiration from a lot of people in our lives. From people we read, to musicians we listen to. And we try to bring them into our lives and make their contributions and somehow live our lives in in relation to their contributions and i wonder how dorian actually makes niebuhr relevant or practical to use is niebuhr receding into an idealism like his brother richard claims him to be it is democracy itself just another form of idealism that can't be obtained and is, is niebuhr too optimistic about our 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 condition yeah Probably, probably my my major question. Yeah, that's interesting. It's always interesting to take like kind of where on the rare occasion Niebuhr says this is it, like he does with democracy and yeah. children of light, children of darkness, or or uh, our new American history. You want to see where that goes. Like in the rare occasions he holds up a certain conclusion, is that an idealism now? You know, yeah. I. I yeah, that's good. We should probably wrap up now, man. <laughs> we should probably yeah, save that. Yeah. Uh, save it for next week. Yeah. I, I can see it in your eyes, Aaron. You're about to take us down another rabbit trail. Well, you know, the, the coconut tree is lonely on my island. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that's probably, that, that does it for us today. If you're new to the podcast, um, make sure that you give us a like and subscribe follow us on twitter at love thy neighbor uh, make sure to add us if you have any questions or comments and we'll be sure to to, to bring those 
onto the podcast with us. If you really want to do something nice for us, write us a review on whatever platform you're using. You'll see the James Coney, James Coney, James Comey gave us a marvelous review uh, and even commenting on Aaron's British accent. Uh, I'm not. It's British. not really James Comey. We don't think anyway. We we can't confirm like who that is at, at the given moment. But anyway, yeah, maybe. But, uh, thank you all again so much for for listening. Um, take care, take care, everybody, and stay safe out there.